Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 56, Pope Felix the Fourth. Felix the Fourth? That means we're getting too close to the fifth, which means we're going to be out of anti-popes. Oh, well, okay, so you've just hit it on the head, really. We have to remember that Felix IV is the third of our legitimate popes, thanks to Antipope Felix II, and we're going to see a whole bunch of other Antipopes before Felix V, so don't worry about that. This is going to crop up again with a future Antipope Felix as well, so there's going to be another one. So for whatever reason, this pope name just comes with problems. It also leads to some confusion and melding of sources between this Pope Felix, who should be Pope Felix III, and the actual Pope Felix III that we covered in episode 50. So in doing those two popes, it was sometimes you would get sources that had kind of decided that they were the same person when they are clearly not the same person. And if you look up images for this Pope, you will get, or or if you look up for Felix III, you will get the same image repeated for both of them. So. Lots of sleuthing went into this one. So I will tell you what I know about this Felix, specifically this Felix and not the last Felix. So this Felix was born with the name Anicius Felix, and he was the son of Castorius, born in Samnium, which is in southern Italy, where Benevento is now. We know almost nothing else about his early life, aside from two sort of speculative points. One is that he was perhaps made a cardinal deacon in 494 by Pope Gelasius. The other is that there was a deacon called Felix who was sent on the papal delegation by Pope Hormistus in 519 to the new emperor Justin in that whole putting an end to the occasion schism thing, and this could very likely be this Felix. What we do know, or at least can infer with a strong degree of certainty, is that there was something about this Deacon Felix that King Theoderic really liked. And remember, this is the same King Theoderic who just imprisoned and starved the previous Pope to death in a jealous rage when the Pope did pretty much exactly what he had wanted him to do. Theoderic needs to be fired. But we'll get there. Can we fire him yet? He has been in this position too long. It's coming. It's coming so soon. Where's the board to, like, push him out of his position? Oh, Fry, you forget that at this point in time, if you were a jerk, it was going to be divine intervention. Oh, you're right. Where is God in all of this? We will find out shortly. So this guy, this guy who just killed the last pope, likes Felix. So when the official word got out that Pope John was definitely actually dead in that prison in Ravenna, Theoderic pushed the clergy of Rome to elect Felix to be his successor. So he's like, I didn't like that guy, he's dead now, and uh, this is going to be your new pope. And... After a sede vacante of about two months, 
probably caused by the wait to bring Pope John's body back to Rome for a proper burial, the clergy went ahead with exactly what Theoderic wanted and elected Felix to be the next pope on July 12th of 526. So they were all voluntold. Yes, they were all voluntold and they were like, hey, so our last pope just died for doing exactly what he wanted. If we don't do what he wanted, what's going to happen next? If you do what he wants, you still die. There's no winning situation here. Yeah, but they weren't willing to, like, defy him. So they just did the thing. And we actually know how incredibly pleased this time Theoderic was, because we have a letter preserved by Cassiodorus, written by Theoderic to the Roman Senate, expressing his pleasure. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from that. We profess that we hear with great satisfaction that you have responded to the judgment of our glorious lord and grandfather in your election of a bishop. It was right in sooth to obey the will of a good sovereign who, handling the matter with wise deliberation, although it had reference to a form of a faith alien from his own, thought fit to select such a pontiff as could rightfully be displeasing to none. You may thus recognize that his one chief desire was that religion might flourish by good priests supplied by all the churches. You have received, then, a man both admirably endowed with divine grace and approved by royal scrutiny. Let no one any longer be involved in the old contention. There is no disgrace in being conquered when the king's power has helped the winning side. That man makes him the successful candidate his own who manifests to him pure affection. For what cause for regret can there be when you find this man those very qualities which you looked for in the other when you embraced his party? So this is a letter of, ooh, look, you've actually agreed to take my wise and expert and wonderful choice because I'm such a good king. He's uh, patting himself on the back. With both hands. But... Theoderic didn't have too long to actually be pleased by their choice for election, because he died on August 30 of that year, struck down by divine intervention again if the Liber Pontificalis gets to have its say. And now God has stepped in and said, hey, we did fire this dude. So, struck down by divine intervention, a la the Liber Pontificalis, or struck by great wounds, if Gregory of Tours gets to have an input. Just, like, spontaneous wounds. Could be. Could be. I mean, he's not remembered very fondly by Catholic sources, so no one really wrote with any sympathy about his death. And his death was probably a pretty big boon for Felix, since now he didn't have to deal with this king, who was very changeable as far as working with popes went. And even better than that... Theoderic was going to be succeeded by his grandson, Athalaric, who was only ten at the time, and so his mother, Amalasuntha, assumed the title of queen regent and ruled in his place. And Amalasuntha was nowhere as difficult to deal with as Theoderic had been. She was a well-educated woman with positive international relations with the Eastern Empire, she was very friendly towards Catholicism, despite still being Arian. And so, this is great. Pope Felix fosters a very positive and friendly relationship with the Queen, which is a huge, huge bonus for the Church. 
So we went from jerk man to enlightened lady. She was just there the whole time. She's a really, really interesting figure, and we're going to cover a lot more about her in our upcoming popes as we go. But yeah, she was a figure. She's not very well known at all, but she's very interesting. So she has a good relationship with the Pope. And this manifests most clearly when the clergy of Rome were able to bring their concerns to the queen, specifically about certain privileges that should belong to the church that were at this time being appropriated and taken over by civil authorities. And this is particularly in reference to where civil or criminal charges brought against clergy members were supposed to be heard and adjudicated. They bring this to her and they say, hey, look, we are supposed to be judged by the church rather than by the Senate. And this is kind of getting mishy-mashy. So can you help us out? And Queen Amalasantha responded in favor of the church in this, based on her good relationship with Felix, and issues a royal decree protecting the custom that all charges, either civil or criminal, brought against the clergy were to be heard only by the Pope or a court appointed by the Pope. And any violations of this decree would result in a fine of 10 pounds of gold, which would be given to the poor via the Pope. That's a lot of gold. That is so much gold. I don't even think I have 10 pounds of gold anywhere. If you had 10 pounds of gold, I think people would be like, where is her house? I'm going to break in. That is a lot of freaking gold. I don't even think I have, like, any, really. <laughs> good good cover. Good cover. How many? Do I have eight and a half pounds of gold? No, wait. I don't have any. I only have, like, 9.75 pounds of gold. Well, then you better not try to hear any charges against any clerics, because you will have to pay that fine, and through the Pope, it will go to the poor. So this decree of ecclesiastical immunity was prepared by Cassiodorus, so it has been preserved in the Variae, in Book 8, Letter 24. For the gift of kingly power we owe an infinite debt to God, whose ministers ye are. Ye state in your tearful memorial to us that it has been an ordinance of long custom that anyone who has a suit of any kind against a servant of the sacrosanct Roman Church should first address himself to the chief priest of that city, lest haply your clergy, being profaned by the litigation of the forum, should be occupied in secular rather than religious matters. And you add that one of your deacons has, to the disgrace of religion, been so sharply handled by the legal process that the Sio has dared actually to take him into his own custody. This dishonor to the ministers of holy things is highly displeasing to our inborn reverence, yet we are glad that it gives us the opportunity of paying part of our debt to heaven. Therefore, considering the honor of the apostolic see, and wishing to meet the desires of the petitioners, we, by the authority of this letter, decree in regular course, that if any one shall think he has a good cause for going to the law with a person belonging to the Roman clergy, he shall first present himself for hearing at the judgment seat of the most blessed Pope, in order that the latter may decide, between the two in his holy manner, or may delegate the cause to a jurisconsult to be ended by him. And if perchance, which it is impiety to believe, the reasonable desire of the petitioner shall have been evaded, then he may come to the secular courts with his grievance, 
when he can prove that his petitions have been spurned by the bishops of the aforesaid see. Should any litigant be so dishonest and so irreverent, both towards the Holy See and our authority, as to disregard this order, he shall forfeit ten pounds of gold to be exacted by the officers of the Count of Sacred Largesses, and distributed by the Pope to the poor, and he shall lose his suit in addition, notwithstanding any degree which he may have gained in secular court. Meanwhile do you, whom our judgments thus venerate, live according to the ordinance of the Church. It is a great wickedness in you to admit such crimes as do not become the conversation of even secular men. Your profession is of the heavenly light. Do not condescend to the groveling wishes and vulgar errors of ordinary mortals. Let the men of this world be coerced by human laws. Do you obey the precepts of the righteousness? So this is a huge precedent here that the church has been fighting for for a very, very long time and is now enshrined by law by royal decree and will set a pretty strong precedent for the extended foreseeable future because this is ecclesiastical immunity. Yep. That is massive. So this is definitely going to be a huge tick in Felix's column because he and his good relationship with Amalasantha leads to ecclesiastical immunity. So then, having accomplished one of the biggest things that the church will ever accomplish, Felix turns his attention to heresy because Pelagianism is back. <gasps> Pelagianism. Sort of. I mean, at least semi-Pelagianism is back. They plagiarized the Pelagianism. Yeah, this is the plagiarized version of plagiarism. <laughs> And it is rousing up new conflict all over again. So, in Gaul, the semi-Pelagian ideas on God's grace and free will had never really properly subsided and were now being espoused by the bishop Faustus of Rie. Here's a recap in short form. So, the semi-Pelagian understanding of grace and free will was that man's will was responsible for the inception of faith but that progression of faith in the man was God's work and grace. By comparison, the Orthodox view was that God absolutely was a part of the inception of faith, and that the grace of God in forgiveness and salvation was not something merited by man. So, for us it looks like a small difference, but it is, at the time, a very, very big distinction point. So, Pope Felix is made aware of the defense of semi-Pelagianism that's going on in Gaul because Faustus wrote directly to him. And in response, Felix sent the Bishop of Arles, Caesarius, a series of 25 essays and biblical chapters and doctrine from church fathers like Augustine to clarify the church position on grace and free will to disseminate for all of the bishops across Gaul. So. Faustus writes to him, he goes, mm, I don't know, this is not right, let's just send this, but I'm going to send it to the head guy in Gaul so he can just deal with all of you at once. And that's exactly what Caesarius does. He presents all of the writings to all of the Gallic bishops in a synod of July 529 called the Second Council of Orange. Where was the First Council of Orange? In Orange. <laughs> We we did briefly mention it. I think we did, and I think I thought, why is there a place named after citrus fruit? 
That is why there is a place named after citrus fruit. But it is, of course, orange. But yeah. So, at the Second Council of Orange. I don't want it to be sexy, citrus. Who said sexy? That was just my hoity-toity French. <laughs> Let's have the normal citrus. Okay. So, at the Second Council of Orange, these writings were accepted and ratified. And this officially ends the conflict on semi-Pelagianism. This council itself, the Second Council of Orange, is a very significant council for the 6th century, so I'm trying not to gloss over it entirely, but it's just one of those councils that's very clear-cut and not hotly debated, so it only, you know, we could say, this is what they did. It was accepted. That's it. We talked about it. Felix also received two significant ancient edifices within the Roman Forum from the Queen Amalasuntha. So he receives the former Temple of Romulus slash Heroine Romuli and the adjoining Templum Sacrae Urbis. These were obviously pagan buildings, but Felix converted both of them into the nave and atrium of the Christian church which was consecrated as the Sancti Cosma e Damiano for the saints Cosmas and Damian, who are martyrs and patrons of a lot of medical professions. So Cosmas and Damian are the patron saints of surgeons, physicians, dentists, pharmacists, veterinarians, etc., etc., etc. This church still exists, and we'll be talking about it again when we get to Facium Sanctus. Then. In 530, Pope Felix fell seriously ill, and while he was ailing, he grew very concerned about the future of the papacy. The way that he had become pope was definitely not ideal for the church, and what had just happened to his predecessor was even worse, you know, since the politics of the kingdom are still divided between pro-Byzantine and pro-Ostrogothic kingdom supporters, we're dealing with a situation where we have a divided clergy, just like there was when Symmachus was elected. And so, what happens when there's a divided clergy? Death. I mean, you skipped a step, but yes. So, that that's what he's worried about. He's worried about the antipopes and the death. So, I mean, if you think about it, you can understand why he's concerned. Only one pope out of the last four had a papacy that was uncontested in some way, shape, or form. So, Felix doesn't want this for the church when he's gone, and he felt that the best way for him to prevent any division in the church was for him to name his own successor. You can see where he's going with this. So, he chose his favorite archdeacon, Boniface, and signified his choice publicly by giving Boniface his pallium, which, remember, is a clerical vestment only worn by the Bishop of Ostia and the Vicariates and the Pope. He also informed the royal court in Ravenna of his decision in writing. So he's like, look, I want to just get this over with. I don't want conflict for the church. And so I am appointing that Boniface will be the next Pope. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. However... As Felix lay dying, it became increasingly evident that neither the clergy nor the royal government wanted to support a pope naming his own successor. They are not about this life. They're like, mm, that sets a really ugly precedent that we don't want to deal with. 
And frankly, we don't like the person you've chosen. So in response to the letter he'd sent to the secular court, the Roman Senate took a page from Symmachus and actually officially forbade the discussion of papal succession during the lifetime of a pope, or for any person to accept a nomination to succeed while a pope was still living. So they are effectively nullifying Felix's wishes with a precedent. And then when Felix actually does die, the majority of the clergy reject his choice Boniface and elect someone else. Oh, wow. And we're back to anti-papacies. Mm-hmm. But that is a story for next week, and you'll have to try and figure out who the next pope is. Da da da. Even though this is a short episode, this story doesn't belong here because, yeah, it gets a little wild after this. It's next week's. Yeah, it's different, and and we have not hit an anti-papacy like this before, so. Oh, and finally, we have a little bit of ordination numbers. So during his papacy, Felix held holy orders for 55 priests and three bishops. So church is getting some new blood. And then he died on September 22nd of 530. Uh, Whatever ailed him. Yeah, yeah, of that lingering serious illness. Now, one source that I read said that he died at the age of 40. But at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that it was thought that Felix was made a cardinal deacon by Gelasius in 494, which means he would have been four years old when he was made a cardinal deacon, if that 40 stat was correct. So someone done Maybe he was the precocious little boy bishop? Yeah, like, just my five-year-old now is very, like, if he goes into the church, he's just Suddenly, like, a completely different human, like, just back straight, very, like, alert, looking around, doing all the motions. Imagine a four-year-old bishop. They would be the best bishop. That is a lovely preview for what we're covering for our Christmas special. (laughs) A four-year-old bishop? Boy bishops. We'll be talking about boy bishops for Christmas. So, this is coming out sooner than that can't remember if I was going to do it on Patreon or not. But anyways, somewhere there is going to be a special episode on Boy Bishops. All right. He's probably not four, though. So um, he was probably not 40 when he died, which makes sense. If you look at the photos of him and that's 40, that's a hard-ass 40. So he was buried in the atrium of St. Peter's Basilica with an epitaph that read, Good Bishop Felix has certain faith that the heavenly kingdom lies open to the just. He was placed before many proud men because of his simplicity and humble piety. Generous to the poor, giver of comfort to the wretched, he increased the wealth of the apostolic see and deserves a lofty place. And of course, that again is from Wendy J. Reardon's book, The Deaths of the Popes. And I love it. I'm going to get it one day. Thanks, Google Book Preview. That is Pope Felix IV. And now we must rate him. Papatum infallium. So, okay, under him, the new church was founded and ordinations happened. So, gentle tick. Semi-Pelagianism was officially ended in Gaul with the Second Council of Orange in 529. Good tick. And the big one, ecclesiastical immunity enshrined in law. That, I've been toying with how to score this because I want to, on some level, give it a 10. 
But at the same time, I don't think ecclesiastical immunity, even though it's huge for the church in terms of an accomplishment and the impact it has on the papacy, it's not always a good thing. And it will definitely not always be a good thing. So I'm going to give him an eight. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm leaning towards like a seven. Okay. That's fair. You know, I like that he's not getting top marks for something that even though in his own time, I can understand why they always wanted to be tried by the church, because the overarching government is consistently changing, and that he could not have foreseen what's going to happen with ecclesiastical immunity. But he still gets a pretty good score. That's a 15 out of 20. So, that's good. Fructus prohibitum. Nothing. Nothing at all. Except for the whole choosing his own successor thing, but I mean, he kind of he was laying in his bed. He had nothing else to think about. We're going to see this issue come up again, and we'll see how people respond to it when they have time to respond to it. This is something he did for the well-being of the church, and then he died. So whether or not he was even aware that everyone was like, this is a real bad idea, is hard to gauge. Because I feel like with the kind of pope that he was, if people were like, we're really not on board with this, he would have listened. So. Seculari impactum. A couple things. His election, if you can call it an election, is purely predicated on the pressure of the king, who literally just had the last pope murdered. So the secular influence is way stronger on the church than the church is on the secular population right now. He didn't really do anything to the people. Yeah. So right now, the balance of power there is definitely on the secular side. So that's not great. However, um, he, even the benefits for the church that he gets come through secular civil power of the king and the regent and Queen Amalasuntha. So even the good things he does comes from secular power. So this is not going to be great. But we do have to consider that there is something to be said for that positive relationship. If he had been a dick to the queen, she probably wouldn't have gotten on board. Yeah, you're right. It's like a three. Yeah, a three's really good. Yeah, I think that's fair. So then he gets a six. Fossium Sanctus. Now this is probably going to be his category in a way. So first I will show you the picture we normally rate on. Actually, this is probably not going to be his category because this photo is not particularly amazing. However, it is going to be a special category for him. So, Ooh, it's so small. It is, lately, they've all been very small. And as much as I try to find a big one, there's no big one. So there he is. That's him. It's, I don't know, it's, it's very clear for being very small. Uh, he's not remarkable in any way. That is an old man. Yeah, it's not an ugly old man. It's not a particularly grumpy or tired old man. He isn't beat up in the face. You know, it's... He's got an excessively long beard and kind of that round shape like Fat Thor when they didn't put the fat suit on Chris Hemsworth and tried to pretend his beard was fat. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I, I think it's just a middle of the road five, to be honest. Okay, so are you going to give him a five too? Yeah, I'll give him a five. Okay, so that gives him a 2.5 for this round. However, 
There is a mosaic in the apse of the church that Felix built, the Sancti Cosma e Damiano, which is effectively the quote-unquote first contemporary portrait of a pope done in his lifetime. So, Shabtai, if you're listening, aside from Damasus, this is the earliest one in question. Like, this, this is it. This is the one you can say, for sure, we know this is Felix, we know this was generally created in his lifetime. However, the image that is accepted to be Pope Felix has been, like, this mosaic has obviously been significantly altered and rebuilt over the course of history. So even though the original was the first contemporary image of the Pope, we can't be sure that what we have now represents what it looked like back then. <laughs> Did they turn him into a lion? Well, no, it's like, it's like straight up a Pope image, and it's really quite cool. We have the ability to look at this in quite some detail. But we're, we're walking away from this going, where is the first contemporary image of the Pope? It was here. But we can't trust that it's still that, that it hasn't been, like, altered to be. It has probably been polished in that time, for sure. So here it is. Here's the dome. I want you to look at this in big version. Make it real big. Yeah, just make it as big as you can make it, because there's, there's some things I'd like to observe about it. So first off... Felix is the guy poking out of the corner in the gold robes. On um, the the golden blue and not the 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 plaid? No, not the plaid. The the gold with the, the blue wrist and the one that's just kinda like, hey. What's he holding? He he's holding here I have a, a smaller version in which you can see he's holding a church. It is a church. Yeah, okay, I see it now. It it looks kind of like an accordion, like he was gonna start polka dancing at any moment from the other one yep there there's his face in in some serious detail so that's him and um just for reference i'm gonna send you a, a kind of a snapshot thumbnail here to show you why the big one is so funny everyone in this picture is looking at him like he is a <laughs> shady ass motherfucker. <laughs> like he's just like peeking around the corner like hey i got it i got this church but open the big one. Everyone in it, except for even Jesus, looks grumpy. <laughs> yeah. Felix is just kind of like, hey. Like, his face is not grumpy compared to everyone else who just thinks that he is a shady motherfucker. So He showed up 15 minutes late with Starbucks. <laughs> well, he showed up 15 minutes late with church. With <laughs> church. Yeah. So, it's a pretty spectacular image, really, when you look at it. It's quite gorgeously done. It is full color, so you know it has been restored quite a lot, but it's substantial, and I really like it, and I really like, my favorite thing to look at is if you go and look at a lot of religious imagery, especially through the Renaissance period, everyone is so intensely suspicious of one another in those paintings. Like, it's usually like Mary and, and baby Jesus are giving each other the worst side eye. And then there are some really, really famous, like the Annunciation. There are several Annunciations in which Gabriel and the Virgin Mary look like they have had beef for years. So this fits into that holy, suspicious Renaissance painting. So I can't get over these fat horse-sheep hybrids. Oh yeah, on the bottom. Mm. I didn't even look at those before, but of course you would. I was too busy with the shady eyes. So they're pretty spectacular. I like it. You can you can go and see this today. You can do that. It's in the Roman Forum, basically. It is fabulous. So 
There's that. Tempus Pontificus. July 12th, 526 to September 22nd of 530. Four years, which is a score of one. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. He is a saint. He has a feast day of January 30th, and he has no patron sainthood. None? None. So what would you like to make him a patron saint of? It's got to be showing up 15 minutes late. (laughs) 15 minutes late with Starbucks? I mean, that's the meme, but... (laughs) He can he can just show up. He's got a church. He doesn't have a star. I mean, he could have a Starbucks. Someone photoshopped that as a Starbucks instead of a church. If somebody photoshops that, I will post it everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he'll be the patron saint of showing up 15 minutes late. That works. That brings us to covering his total score, which is interesting. He is a 25.5. He's right in the middle, because lately we have had either, like, right around 10 or, like, 30s and 40s. So he is kind of middling it up a little bit. We haven't had a pope in the 20s since Boniface. So, yeah, that puts him in 21st place overall out of 56. That's not bad at all. Actually, by the way, we we never mentioned this when we recorded it, but Pope Hormistus is in fourth place now. What? Yeah, so that was something to see. Harmistus. Har. <laughs> so now I have to ask you, is he papal enough and pizzazzy enough for a papal bull? No. Nah. Like we said, he's middling, and middling just does not cut the mustard. Or the bull. Or whatever. The pumpkin spice latte. (laughs) Okay, if you show up 15 minutes late to something that I'm running and you have a PSL, I will dump that all over you. They just came out today. Did they really? Oh my god, say. I love that now, in terms of the way that holiday seasons are going, I usually get really, really mad over how long we see Christmas stuff for, but the fact that it goes from my birthday into Halloween gives me life and joy and i will still be so mad when i start seeing christmas stuff out but halloween can come as early as it wants so bring on the pumpkin everything so on that note we have some thank yous to make and the first is for our next patron who must be absolved of their temporal punishments hoparinchinis <laughs> That's not out yet. I can't wait to hear what our patrons want to be called. Our newest Pope Roncini. I love it. I think it's going to stick. I'm not going to lie. So this is Lycania or Lycinia. I hope one of those is correct for you. I really kind of hope it's Lycinia because that is such a lovely Roman name. But thank you. Thank you. And you are now absolved. Ego te absolvo. We also need to, of course, thank. Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor and the Roman and Byzantine History Group on Facebook and also the Discord server that we're on for all history podcasts. It is just called History Podcasts and you should look for it on Discord because we talk about weird things, mostly D&D and, and nerdy history things. Somehow it's turned into D&D, yeah. Especially the Pontifex channel. The Pontifex channel gets wild. <laughs> And I am not sorry. And on that note, we can say thank you 
and goodbye. Bye.